0: Jordan. This is it. We made it. We did it. 200 episodes of the Insurgents podcast. How are you feeling about this? What a milestone. What an achievement.
1: Well, I feel great, Rob. Good. They said it couldn't be done. Yeah. When we started, they said, this podcast will never reach 200 episodes. (laughs) All the critics, New York Times had it as their headline. Yeah. All the podcast critics, all the the trade publications for the industry Yep. said well this will never go 200. Elon Here Musk
0: famously I predict I predict this will fizzle out at 65 episodes <laughs> uses his, <laughs> his scientific knowledge to <laughs> and everyone underestimated us that's it everyone underestimated us and we bucked all expectations it's kind of funny because I was like I was hoping we could maybe do something like special or cool, like a big blowout 200th episode spectacular. I've been like delaying the episode to do it, and it's like you're in the middle of moving. I got stuff going on, and if ultimately it's just like okay, let's just get Darna Noor to come on and talk about the climate stuff, you know, whatever.
1: Which is pretty special. It is special. Darna is special. Darna is
0: Darna is fantastic. I don't mean to to undersell that. Um, it was actually yeah, we had a really great talk with. Uh, kind of our official climate correspondent Darna Noor uh, in this episode. It's just also funny because due to due to like technical issues this is just a recorded Zoom call so it's one of the it's one of the least professional sounding episodes as well which maybe you'd think we would figure out after 200 episodes but you know it was a, it was a really important to have this conversation right now. It was really good to talk to Darna. But I think it was a very I think it was a wonderful 200th episode.
1: Yeah. I thought it was good. The technical issues aside, um, I thought the conversation was was helpful. We we got into obviously the Maui fire, the policies that have exacerbated that, and how things like drilling and, and emissions feed into extreme weather, which Southern California, my new home, is now going to see. You know, we're bracing for a, a hurricane this weekend, which is unheard of <laughs> well, uh, nice in the Los welcome. Angeles area. Yeah, Hurricane Hillary.
0: What is this? What is this? The, the twenty fifteen election?
1: Uh, oh wow, she's focused too much on California. The... <laughs> Tail as old as, as time. Oh goodness. Um.
0: Yeah. No. Like. And I, this is something I actually wanted to mention because uh, it didn't. I didn't really get a chance to talk about this during the talk with uh, with Darna. But uh, you know, I I did talk about you know, the wildfires that have been going on in Canada all summer. Like if you look at a map of British Columbia right now basically the entire province is uh, on fire as well as the uh, Yukon territory. Also, it's just, it's, it's extremely terrifying. And I think the thing that I've noticed, like we got to a little bit of this kind of conversation in the, in the talk with Darna, but you know, there's a big kind of, discussion happening right now uh you know i've talked about pierre polyev and he's out there campaigning against the carbon tax while this stuff is going out trudeau has implemented this kind of meager carbon tax as part of his like climate strategy and i think this has been a very depressing and, and sobering thing for me to see this like this debate going on and oh you know Pierre Polyev doesn't stand for the carbon tax, like while well, all this big climate disaster is going on, and and then the conservatives saying, well, they're talking about the benefits or the of ditching the carbon tax or focusing on these other avenues, and it's just like it's really depressing and discouraging that like this is the conversation that is going on. Um, while this like unprecedented historic uh, disaster is unfolding, um, because you know whether whether you think a carbon tax is a decent like strategy um, or not for like lowering emissions, there's no there's no carbon tax that's going to stop what is currently happening. A carbon tax is part of a kind of climate strategy that might have been really effective if it had been implemented like 40 years ago, like when we knew that this stuff was going on. And I think this is the bizarre and scary thing about some of these conversations right now, whether it's in Canada or talking about Joe Biden and the Inflation Reduction Act and bringing back these kind of manufacturing uh, hubs of you know creating EV batteries and solar panels. like That's all great, but we are so, so far behind and none of these strategies that any of our governments are really proposing, even if they talk about believing the science or they talk about how seriously they're taking this, nothing is even coming close to matching the the level of of seriousness that we need to be treating this kind of crisis, and I think that's the really kind of disillusioning thing about seeing some of these like uh, debates and conversations uh, take place right now, while these these massive disasters are unfolding.
1: Yeah, i I think it's important. We've talked about this before, uh, and I talked about it recently with Dwight. It's important not to just give up as we deal with this this issue. Because it is easy to get demoralized. Yeah. It's easy to just throw your hands up, accept this dismal, you know, bleak climate fate. But we don't have to. Uh, sure, some of this may be inevitable. But resorting to apathy, throwing your hands up, or some sort of climate nihilism is only going to make things worse faster. We can... Meaningfully and substantially fight back against this and change some of it, mitigate some of the worst effects. And I think it's the right thing to do, even if we have been dealt a shit hand. Our generation has been dealt a shit hand. I don't think resorting to nihilism is the way to go. And oddly enough, some people will get mad at you if you even suggest that. Well, don't paint a rosy picture. We're trying not to. We're trying to be yeah. clear eyed about all of this. And we've always tried to be clear eyed about all of this. I think you have a moral obligation for the planet, for people around you, for future generations to fight back against this issue.
0: Yeah, absolutely and I would hope, I would hope that no one would think that my kind of concern about this is kind of uh advocating for apathy or for people to give up. I think on the contrary, I think the point is like whether we're talking about the climate or we're talking about economic issues that people are going through, um you know, obviously you can have a, a, an impact in some of these things by voting for whatever party but as we've been outlining, when it comes to any of these crises, it's not going to be nearly enough, just like voting and then just going home for the next couple of years and allowing the politicians to kind of figure figure all this stuff out, which as we've seen in Canada and the United States has not been really going very well uh, over the last few decades. But yeah, whether it's climate or economic issues, I think the thing that we always need to remember is that we have power when we have solidarity with one another, when working people uh, have solidarity with one another and engage in kind of labor actions i mean we have the ability to shut down the economy um, through strikes uh, through militant labor actions and that's the thing that these people care about um, the people that are you know responsible for the the massive disaster that's kind of unfolding i mean that's that's what they care about they care about their stock numbers and they care about the line constantly going up and we can have all these debates about carbon taxes or reindustrialization or whatever, anything like that. But as long as that line is keeps going up, uh, they're not going to be motivated to take kind of any real action on this. And that's what we all have the ability to affect uh, when we work together and we we have that kind of a, a goal in mind.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So should we get to our conversation with uh, Darna?
0: Yes. Yeah, another another uh, inspiring episode for the the two hundredth. Episode of the Insurgents, but before we get to Darna, though, we should just take a moment to thank every single person that has tuned into this program over the last couple of years. Uh, it's been really fantastic being able to to do this podcast. Uh, I think it's pretty, you know, I'm pretty proud of the accomplishment of getting to uh, 200 episodes, and hopefully, we can keep this thing going. Uh, so, thanks so much to all the Insurgents listeners, our loyal, devoted audience, uh, as and our paid interns as well, who for five dollars a month also get access to. Uh, a extra bonus episode a week. And if anyone wants to support this show as we move into the next uh, block of 200 episodes, uh, it's very, very helpful when people subscribe to the podcast. It helps us keep this show going and we love to do it. We're happy to do it. And uh, we appreciate everyone that's taken the time to listen or support the, the show over the years. Thank you so much, folks.
1: That's right. Yeah, you can go to com. You can subscribe for just... Five bucks a month. We greatly appreciate it. You get access, like Rob said, to an an additional episode every week. If you subscribe now, you get immediate access to all of our backlog of premium episodes. Earlier this week, Rob and I talked about the protest folk song (laughs) that's sweeping the nation. Uh, Oliver Anthony, I'm sure you've seen the video. If not, I'm sure you've seen media coverage about it a redheaded, bearded man yowling in the woods about uh, the rich men north of Richmond, I believe it was was called, which ultimately boiled down to a right-wing populist screed blaming people relying on social safety net programs, thanking and valorizing the troops without meaningfully calling out the power center's The corporations, the politicians, the policies that make income inequality and working class issues so dire today. And that was taken up by the right and championed as some meaningful critique and meaningful commentary on class issues. Well, we got into the substance and why we think the right finds it prudent to pretend like they care about class issues. So that was a really good conversation we have out earlier this week for subscribers only insurgencepod.com you can subscribe to get that episode and every other premium episode
0: did you see that guy just gave an interview with rolling stone where he kind of walked back some of this stuff and he was saying like oh yeah no, all the think, all the commentary about fake. people on welfare that was all about like donald trump and stuff um, that was fake yeah. oh it was
1: yeah, did you? That was a tweet. Someone just posted that as a tweet. Oh, so I looked. At, I went to that that article to and he to said see, nothing like that. that. Was, no.
0: Okay, I thought maybe it was some kind of like a phony kind of walking back, uh, like ala Kyle Rittenhouse saying he supports BLM kind of thing, but it was just completely made up. <laughs> okay, that actually makes more sense.
1: You got, you got got.
0: I've, been, I've fallen victim to the disinformation machine again. But it's actually an interesting connection between the conversation we're about to have. Uh, we talk about Oliver Anthony or some of this kind of class analysis where they kind of start to uh, aim their very justified anger and alienation in the right direction. And then they kind of like go off in this weird tangent. And there's a very similar uh, comparison with these kind of like climate denying conspiracy theorists who talk about very real issues like uh, indigenous land being stolen in Hawaii was the first time they've ever cared about this particular issue in this case, but it's, you know, it's worth pointing out or they'll talk, they'll come, they'll brush right up against the truth and then veer off into this wacky idea about like Chinese space lasers or whatever. So it's kind of a similar sort of thing. Um, They, they brush right up against a making an actual point and then they completely lose it. Um, so I think on that le- on that note, I think a good time to bring on our friend, uh, Darna Noor, to talk more about this issue. Really fantastic as always. Thanks again, folks, for 200 episodes. And uh, Darna Noor is going to be joining the show right after this. 200 episodes you know darna this is the 200th episode of this show wow it's a big milestone
2: damn very excited to be here to celebrate
0: yeah i hope you're ready to really crush this one because we need we need something that's gonna get people excited so well,
2: the most exciting uh yeah extremely wonky industrial policy very very excited yeah for all of the
1: we love million that. views yeah yeah we thought to celebrate this momentous occasion we wanted something upbeat obviously uh, to be sorry to be redundant celebratory and exciting so what better topic than one of our go-to's climate policy yeah something I think that makes that everyone, everyone great yeah yeah it puts a big smile on everyone's face and and who better than you darna
2: yeah i'm glad to help you um bring this occasion in so festively <laughs> sorry in advance for being such a downer <laughs>
1: Well there are some there are some good things. Some, it is true.
2: There are some yeah, good things. Yeah. Well,
1: it's a mixed bag this time around. Usually when you're on it's, hey, we're seeing some of the worst extreme weather ever, or hey, this global climate conference was a total farce. I mean, we do have a couple good things to talk about. So it's true. It's not all bad. We're changing we're changing our, our tone a little bit.
2: They did it for you. They did it for the 200th birthday of the insurgents. They were like, well, we better make some good things happen for yeah. those
0: two. They're I'm they're rigging it. us over the coals here. We yeah, gotta, yeah. gotta give them something. I don't know. What's what's the lighthearted chit chat section though? Are you gaming lately, Darna? Are you playing no, anything?
2: <sighs> I always feel like such we a always disappointment. Do this. Yeah. <laughs> you always ask me this, and I'm always like, mm. Still no.
0: I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I don't. I don't. I didn't consult my my detailed spreadsheet of all the different guests and their relative <laughs> gaming habits and the things that they're into. I'm sorry. I should I have wish. done that.
2: <sighs> next time, here. Next time, just like tell me beforehand, and I'll make sure that I like. I don't know. I'll play something before. So I'm yeah.
0: What about Wordle? <laughs> you playing that? Anything like that?
2: No Wordle these days. Okay. I started playing Tradle for a while, but it was too hard.
0: Yeah. What's that?
2: Uh, it's like Wordle, but for trade policy, which is like <laughs> I know how fucked up is that.
1: That's awesome. Yeah,
2: yeah. uh Would recommend. I,
1: I I am interested. I would check it out. I don't know what the user base, maybe in the Zoomer market, is. I can't imagine all, you get a lot of kids playing that. I yeah, do, probably seems probably to not. skew a little bit older in user demographics, but it does sound fun. I'm a big Risk fan. Global strategy games sound fun. I'll check this out.
2: The, I'm imagining like Zoomers playing tradle. Oh, I'm like world trade pilled or whatever. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm trade maxing. Yeah, I'm trade- <laughs> Um Yeah, I know. I'm I going recently, trade mode. Yeah, exactly. I recently started getting back into Wordle. It took about a year off from that. And now I'm kind of starting to starting to get back into it. I don't know.
2: I should get back and t- I I think I stopped during like the time strike, and then I just never opened it again. Yeah, um, but yeah, I should bring it back. Let me know how you do.
1: It's there going was okay one so far. Uh, Spotify had one for a little bit called Hurdle, and I did play that every day. And they would give you a little snippet of a song, and same you know same type of rules. You get six guesses. Yeah. But the impossible ones were songs with just really slow, long, drawn-out intros. How am I supposed to... Like
2: one note, exactly. Yeah, how am I supposed to know? I played that for a few days, and you're right. It felt very much like there were the extremely obvious ones, and then there were the ones that were completely impossible. Yeah, felt like yep. maybe somebody wasn't uh, curating all that well. But it's a good <laughs> idea.
1: Yeah. Uh. I guess as a segue into our climate policy talk, I'm in a new climate in in North America. And one thing that has, I I knew was different than DC where I've lived the last 10 years. Now that I'm, I'm living in Los Angeles. One thing I was really unprepared for, but knew about were the spiders. Like I had heard there are big spiders here. And then last night we were walking around our house because my fiance saw a huge one on our porch and she, she likes spiders. She's like, Oh, that's cool. Let me see what it is. She got her phone out, identifying it. So then we start walking around and then we start seeing like brown widows, and uh-huh. like a bunch of other like poisonous spiders. And it's like, okay, it was cool in theory. And maybe it's time to get some repellent. Uh, and these things are colossal and they're like horrifying.
2: Yeah, they are truly horrifying. Spiders are definitely one of those things where it's like uh, extremely cool for more than like three feet away.
1: Yes. And then yes.
2: after that, they're horrifying. I was in LA recently and I um, everyone made fun of me because I I was in Ohio in LA for a while and every time I would see a lizard, I would point at it and be like, oh my God, it's so cute. It's a lizard. <laughs> and everyone was like, Dude, they're, they're just everywhere. It's like you're pointing to cockroaches and <laughs> saying yeah. that they're cute. <laughs>
1: Um, i i took a picture of a lizard today i had the same reaction I was like,
2: this is so awesome <laughs> let me know if you ever get over it i hope you i hope you never do
0: i think I like lizards are cool guys. yeah yeah I they like look to see fun. more lizards in my biosphere that would be neat i agree <laughs> well it seems pretty uh it seems pretty nice jordan I saw the saw the we see the early makings of the the new pad the hollywood mm-hmm. lifestyle
2: yeah you gotta have oh, the gumball machine in there
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah that's cool yeah uh it is it is nice it was, a, it was a hassle just to get everything here, and now we're we're dealing with some more issues because we live on a hill on this kind of windy road, which, you know, that's for Californians. That's nothing new, but we're finding it a bit difficult to get furniture delivered. Yesterday, we had a couch scheduled for delivery. The guys show up in a big box truck, get to the bottom of the hill and meet them down there. I see they're stuck. And the guy's like which house is yours and i point to it and he's just like no <laughs> and leaves and i'm thinking like can he do that <laughs> how big uh, is the hill oh it's it is it's very steep and narrow Damn. um and it's only like one car can only fit it at a time which is cool for the view uh yeah. and you get a little bit more quiet and isolation up here but we're finding it's gonna be very difficult to get our stuff in here. So
2: that's wild.
1: It's a mixed bag.
0: Well, uh Hollywood Jordan is gonna be a fixture of the of the show from now on. I was telling <laughs> I was telling Luke, they're gonna grow the beard like Hogan. You're gonna develop this nasty attitude now. <laughs> the, the, the heel, the full heel turn. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. But as we alluded to, uh Darna, like we often we like to bring you on the show to talk a little bit about climate and climate policy. And there's a few big stories in that uh, respect that are happening right now. I think the thing that I find really interesting at the moment, um, you know, we've been dealing with now the sort of the idea of wildfires over the last couple of months because of the ways that the wildfires in Canada were, Blanketing the United States with this massive toxic cloud of smoke. Yeah. That is still ongoing. Right now we've got wildfires like encircling the town in BC of Kelowna. We have like the capital of um of the Yukon territories. A yellow knife is basically being evacuated. These are really big cities that are being uh threatened by these kind of wild wildfires. Sure. Um it's it's really terrifying. And we also have seen obviously over the last couple of weeks in Maui. Uh, in the Hawaiian Islands, the devastating wildfires there. Um, I guess just like, do you, ha, like this seems to be an obviously an increasing, uh, increasingly dangerous situation uh, that we see the flashpoints in like all around the world over the last couple of summers that seem to be getting worse. Have you do you have a sense of frustration as someone that talks about climate and climate policy from the ways that people seems to still be sort of sticking their heads in the sand and pretending that this is some kind of natural phenomena or taking the the factor that like for wildfires often they can they get started for totally normal reasons campfires sure. or um you know lightning strikes and these things but can't make the connection that these things are these situations are getting way way more severe and dangerous and going on for longer because of of climate change and the, the issues that that's causing
2: uh, yes, um, it is definitely frustrating, and I think particularly frustrating to be. There's this kind of conversation that happens every summer. Um, every summer has record-breaking wildfires somewhere. Now it seems. Uh, yeah, like that's just that's the reality of the climate situation we're in right now. Is that they're going to be record-breaking somewhere, and they're going to get worse. Um. And I think that a lot of people have trouble sort of holding more than one idea at once. Like there's nothing that's actually contradictory about saying here are the particular circumstances that led to these particular fires. And also the climate crisis created the conditions for those conditions for like that groundwork to happen in the first place. Um, And like. You know, I I think also like people on the on the on the other side of that, I think that people who are really rightfully concerned about climate change um, can have there's there's like a difficulty, I think, of like you want to be able to point to the climate signals and all these things. And you want to be able to correctly understand that, like the climate crisis has made the conditions for wildfires worse, um, burn longer, burn faster, more unpredictable, things like this. And also there are other factors that are kind of separate but related to the climate crisis that made all of this worse too, right? Like the history of colonialism in Hawaii is like, I I would never want to just be able to say, I would never want to say like, oh, it's climate change. And so that means that all we can do about it is like stop emitting and like have climate adaptation plans. Like climate adaptation plans also need to mean um, land sovereignty and things like this. So yes, I think you have to be able to hold all of those things at once. And it seems like people are frustratingly incapable of doing that sometimes.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's Hawaii seems like a really interesting kind of confluence of these different things. Uh, The talking about these, like these grasses that were not native to the Hawaiian islands that were brought there basically to feed animals and feed cattle that have led to a lot Uh of the, these fires spreading everywhere. Um, In addition to the fact that because of droughts and because of lack of rainfall, leading to, you know, a, a way more combustible environment for these fires to really spread. Um, and it's been very, very bizarre. I mean, you saw this with the wildfires in Canada a few months ago when we were talking about this. You're seeing it now in, in Hawaii and the way that there's these kinds of like right wing sort of conspiracy minded folks who I guess have been fed this nonstop diet of climate denialism. From their preferred media sources now for many years. And now that the really consequences of that are really starting to become more and more undeniable, it seems like they're reaching to these increasingly wacky conspiracies and ideas that explain away what's what's going on here, like with which we all kind of understand. Um, like in Hawaii, they're saying they're basically they're coming up with this sort of uh theory, and this is related to what they were saying about the wildfires being all an excuse to shepherd people into these smart 15 minute cities. Um, And they're saying the same thing in Hawaii that that not only that these fires were started, you know, from the hurricane that blew the blew, the fire inwards and led to these kinds of conditions, but that it was started by some kind of space laser beam, possibly by the Chinese, possibly by someone else
2: that are starting these fires or Oprah. I don't know which one. Yeah. Either one One like Oprah
0: in, in conjunction with the Chinese possibly. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's incredibly bizarre it, like, and it really seems to be like I don't want to psychoanalyze these people too much, but it really does seem to be like a almost a defense mechanism to like explain away this thing that's very, very frightening when to think about these 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 the way that these natural kind of disasters and these increasingly dangerous climate mm-hmm. conditions are seem to be happening more and more and And coming up with these bizarre storylines that can explain that away rather than just acknowledge the the reality that people have been screaming at them to try and accept now for for many years,
2: yeah, for sure. and we've we've talked about this before, but, like, it's particularly frustrating, I think, to see people sometimes get so close to pointing out the right like actors um or the right motivations. Like there's always this sort of general idea that, like, oh, maybe the global elite are responsible for this. And it's like, yeah, like, yep. who was responsible for the most emissions? You know, who are the people who have made it so that we've not, um, you know, had climate policy in the first place? Or even like, who do you think is like who is benefiting when uh, the golf courses get watered uh, in Maui County and people don't have enough water to then like put out fires when they hit their homes? Like it is it's like you point to the right kinds of people. Sometimes you're like, oh, it's rich people. Um, but the, I mean, in some ways it's like the narrative of like the actual reality of the situation is more outlandish in some ways. Like, no, it's not space lasers. It's like decades of unchecked pollution from a thing that is making our world also like, um, productive. Uh, and there's been like campaigns for decades to make it so that, uh, that pollution has gotten worse. And um you know even though we've known about it for a long time like in some ways the the actual story is not any less absurd than uh, than the conspiracy it's so you know yeah. i almost want to be like you guys like just just come over to our side
0: <laughs> yeah well like you're saying they're brushing really close to the truth and i think within the case of this hawaii thing they're kind of coming they're incorporating into this theory the idea of like oprah and jeff bezos and these people these powerful people that have land there saying, oh, this is how they get rid of all the indigenous Hawaiians so they can buy up the land and stuff. And like they're pointing to something that's real, right? The way that this kind of disaster capitalism can come in and the way that, you know, indigenous land in Hawaii and elsewhere is being constantly stolen. Um, So the (laughs) very wealthy and uh, elite few can benefit from that. But then, you know, they, they still can't. They come so close to like, you know, acknowledging that basic truth while then veering off into this in this messed up direction or refusing to acknowledge the idea that maybe we do need to have some kind of a serious response to this, which they seem to be against. They also seem to be only like against the idea of indigenous Hawaiians and others losing their land when they can do it to make this kind of like outlandish conspiracy. I don't think that was an issue. That was really animating a lot of these folks prior to that as well, but that's yeah. kind of a whole separate thing. Yeah.
2: Yeah. A hundred percent. Um. The, uh, it's it's hard i think when like you know not only are you getting in some ways so close to the truth um and then kind of veering in the opposite direction but also like you like many of the people who believe these conspiracies are also people who are like getting completely fucked by the climate crisis too you know like they're they're not exactly the ones who are getting to make like emissions policy either so um yeah it's pretty pretty heartbreaking honestly sometimes like it goes very quickly from Uh, funny to being truly heartbreaking
1: and you have a piece out on tuesday uh sorry thursday this week talking about a, a filing from big oil companies moving to dismiss a lawsuit from officials from the city and county of honolulu who sued big oil over their emissions and the havoc that industry is wreaking on places like hawaii Now, what incredible timing as they're dealing with, as as that state is dealing with just horrendous wildfires. Uh, You know, I think the the death toll is now over 100 or it's close to 100. Yeah. I I mean, just the same week, big oil is trying to dismiss any action. Like you're saying, these people who are impacted by it are powerless, mostly powerless. They try to do something and big oil and, and all of their teams of lawyers are trying to dismiss it i'm curious what what is happening here if you could if you could help explain this case and the status of this case for our listeners uh so they they might better understand it
2: yeah for sure so this is one of like dozens of cases filed by municipalities and in some cases state governments um against oil companies sort of in some cases for their emissions but more specifically in this case and in some other ones about like the deception campaign around emissions like this idea that like Oil companies knew for a long time that their products were dangerous. They covered up that information. They just kept selling them anyway um, and are now like don't want to pay any of the price for like the havoc that that's wreaking. So, you know, in the case of Hawaii, uh, that lawsuit that was brought by uh, the city and county of Honolulu mentions wildfires, I think, once, but also like, you know, it's a place that's facing lots of climate disasters, uh, sea level rise and flooding and things like this, too. Um, so essentially, you know, the government's being like, well, we could have had a different future. Like if you had not covered up this information for decades, if you had not like lobbied legislators so hard for so long, um, and just said that everything was going to be fine, basically, basically, then maybe we'd have a different future here. Maybe we'd like, you know, be able to save many, many lives and like millions, if not billions of dollars, um, in like climate preservation costs and things like this. Um, it's a pretty, pretty interesting set of lawsuits. They are progressing very, very slowly because you know the U.S. justice system is what it is. Um, but yeah, the the timing yesterday was pretty like spectacularly horrible.
1: So at the same time, we're also seeing a, a positive development potentially out of Montana, where a group of young climate activists sued, arguing they have a constitutional right to a clean, healthy environment, and the federal government's environmental policies are violating that right this would be huge if this were to be successful make it to the supreme court i mean i don't have a ton of optimism people have tried this before i'm kind of surprised that out of anywhere in the country it came you know it it, it advanced through montana but i do think it's noble i think this is a strategy that's worth trying and worth continuing to try through different avenues different strategies and approaches have you followed this case and the response i mean we saw that the doj biden's doj is arguing that there is no constitutional right to yes. <laughs> a clean environment so so what, what's what's happening here and how do you how do you compartmentalize this you know feel good story i think we, that we all should celebrate and lift up while also recognize this is a very steep hill
2: yeah a very steep hill especially because you know the uh trajectory of like the judiciary in the United States is certainly not a left word to say the least. Um, But yeah, the, the Montana ruling was definitely exciting if only limitedly exciting. Um, I followed that case really closely. It was the first constitutional climate lawsuit in the U S to go to a trial. And I went to the trial in Montana back in June. Um, And, you know, it was like really, really moving to hear from these uh, 16 kids about the ways that climate change has affected their lives, how they're like, basically not able to be children in the landscapes that they've grown to love so much, um, how they can't play outside, how like wildfire smoke has exacerbated their asthma, um, how some of them have like just debilitating depression and anxiety, um, thinking about the way that their landscapes around them is changing. Um, and the state, honestly, in the Montana, like the state, this this was a case that these kids brought against the state of Montana. So whereas the other lawsuits are uh, governments bringing them against companies in this one, um the state was the was the defense um and these kids you know it was very exciting i think for them to to win to get this incredible ruling um where basically you know a judge affirmed like yes the constitution of montana gives you a right to a healthy environment that includes a stable climate um however the effects of that first of all we don't even know if it's going to survive an appeal so we'll see also, the effects of that obviously only apply in Montana. They're pretty limited, um, could definitely inspire some other action in other places. So like, not to be a bummer about it is definitely exciting, but I think it's also important to sort of be realistic about what the scope is there, if that makes sense. Uh,
0: there's a really interesting dichotomy as well. I'm really thinking about at this moment as well, the, the kids who um, tried to uh, pay a visit to Diane Feinstein um yes. <laughs> a couple years ago. When we were famous. Oh and told, hey, I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. You know that's kind of interesting, given yeah. the specifics of that that if certain that that case that at the moment. Human being,
2: yeah, right yeah. now, yeah, we, for sure. It clearly,
0: does not know what they're doing in any respect. But 100. Yeah. No. Um. Like, I think that's interesting, and uh, there's a really interesting. I think, like kind of act of double that's going on right now with the Biden administration where they're trying to tout their amazing climate accomplishments um which you know I don't want to discount the fact that they they have accomplished a few things there's a few things in that inflation reduction act which we're going to you know talk about um even though like a lot of their more ambitious agenda was kind of dead on arrival I mean it's not nothing but it's it's interesting how they're trying to hold this position of arguing that they're they're doing more than any other presidential administration has ever done, which might be true. I mean it's it's a very, very low bar. yeah, but exactly. it might be true, but they're trying to tout that while simultaneously like arguing this case while simultaneously opening up new drilling avenues for uh, oil and natural gas and pipelines. Um, it's like they want the accolades for taking this this action that they are taking you know whether that's anywhere near enough of what it needs to be to actually significantly reduce emissions or confront the real crisis that we're in meanwhile they want to have it both ways they want to appease the the oil and natural gas companies and they want to argue this case against against kids that are desperately concerned about their future you know yeah. it's it's pretty you know it's kind of it's it's pretty grotesque
2: it's, I think, I mean, you're completely right that the problem basically is like the yardstick of recent history is a really shitty yardstick. Like, yeah, it, it is more in terms of investments than any other president has done and also pales in comparison to what's needed. Um, and also like, I mean, the recent, the remarks about that uh, the Biden VOJ made that i think the lever reported on um where they basically were like no we don't think that there is a right to a constitutional or a constitutional right to a like a healthy environment to a stable climate that is technically true they were talking about a federal lawsuit that's similar um juliana versus us so that's like a similar sort of thing to the montana lawsuit but brought at the federal level by kids across the country um like that is true there is not a constitutional right to a stable climate that is a problem and like You know they could encourage the doj to uh acknowledge that that's a problem like maybe acknowledge for instance that we didn't uh actually know anything about climate change when the constitution was written or like you know we were not emitting at the level like nearly that we are now um at that time uh so like i don't know they have this really kind of huge level of plausible deniability with things like this where it's like There's this really crucial moment for like a potentially groundbreaking lawsuit. Um, And yet the things that they're saying are basically like, Oh, well we're just stating the facts. There isn't like, we just, you know, we just think it would be an overreach because the constitutional amendment doesn't exist. Um, It's very frustrating.
1: Now, now here in Southern California, we are gearing up for hurricane Hillary. And this is something that people in the media is framing as a once in a 100 year type weather event. Yeah. Now, I'm hoping you can help explain because I'm sure everyone listening to this has seen somebody or knows somebody who refuses to dr- in their mind connect the dots between climate change, extreme weather and events like this and what's contributing. You know, scientists have said for years, experts have have talked about for years drilling Uh, emissions, all of these things feed into these extreme weather events and these unlikely occurrences like what Southern California is going to see. So I'm hoping you can explain so people will then be equipped to push back on that because we're going to see it when when people like you, I'm sure you'll write about it when other people talk about, hey, this hurricane that Southern California is experiencing right now, this is because of climate change. So I'm hoping you can help inform people so they'll be better equipped to push back against people naysaying
2: yeah for sure i mean again like in any of these cases i don't know what the like specific climate signal is going to be in this hurricane like there are there are like you know top-notch scientists who every time there's an extreme weather event especially when it's out of the ordinary will kind of go in and be able to say here's how much worse this is because of climate change. Here's how much like, you know, less bad it would have been if climate change wasn't happening. I have no idea what any of that is going to result in. um, But like, this is clearly abnormal. And it is clearly not unrelated to like this, you know, just a completely out of control crisis that we're seeing with greenhouse gas emissions. Um, I don't think that that argument really tends to convince people, though, like you can say all day that, Uh, you you know, it's very, there's like very clear science that shows that when the oceans are warmer, they like fuel hurricanes more or like their warmer atmosphere just like holds more water. Um, so it has more water to dump when it rains. Like all of those things are very true. And yet I feel like if you're fed this kind of steady diet of climate denialism, um, or even just like this sort of climate skepticism, like, oh yeah, maybe it's happening, but is it really that bad? I'm not really sure that like the scientific fact is what's going to convince you, um, I would hope that we could live in a world one day where it kind of doesn't matter whether you believe it or not because the solutions are so good for people anyway. Like, I I don't care if you want more public transit because you need to get to work every day or because you, um, you know, care about like the uh, d- lessening highway emissions or whatever. Like, I don't care what the reason is that we have those things. I would like to live in a world where they're beneficial to people. Um, but like, it just, it seems to me like, There's been this long kind of history of like trying to get people uh, to listen by repeating the same facts over and over again. It just doesn't really seem to be working, I guess. Um, Although it is clearly very frustrating and like, you know, there are, I think, people in the world who you can just be like, Hey, I understand that you're like hearing this rhetoric, but also if you just like look at a record of how bad hurricanes have been over the past 20 years, they are getting worse. And here's some people who can explain why that is to you. You know, here's some scientists who can explain why that is to you. Um, like I don't want to discount the importance of the science at all, but also it seems pretty clear that it's not uh, alone going to get people uh, on the right side. I
0: guess. Yeah, and it seems like there's always going to be some kind of an excuse or something like you, you know, there's this, there's still this big right wing media ecosystem that's funded by the oil and gas industry. That's 100%. their whole job is just to either play the denialism card or to focus on these like social issue issues and. Uh, you know, talk about uh, fear about trans people all day to get people divided about something else. So they're not paying attention to what's going on with the climate, um, which does seem to be, you know, fairly effective. Yeah. But um, you talked about like this policy of of trying to get bring people together and like improve people's conditions. Um. I mean, that was whole. that was like one thing to be the whole idea of the Green New Deal. That was kind of the whole purpose of that, which Biden famously said, no, we don't we don't support that yes. and explicitly ran against it. But I mentioned, like, I've been quite critical of the administration on, on this issue, I think for, you know, a number of reasons, but I think it's worth pointing out that in this Inflation Reduction Act, as as lackluster as that was in terms of climate, um, you know, there are some, it's it's actually interesting now to look at some of the ways that that is starting to cause a, a or bring about a kind of positive economic impact anyways. I will get to the actual effect that it has on the climate act, uh, uh, afterwards, but, you know, It's like I was reading this story in uh, Politico about some of these new factories now that this Inflation Reduction Act are bringing to predominantly red states, like significantly more than blue states. And because of these like tax policies that are in this uh, act, it's luring um, foreign investment and foreign companies to come and start building uh, factories in some of these places. and building, you know, solar panels, building building EV batteries and things like that, which does like it's it's going to have a positive economic effect. Um, but I think the fascinating thing is this whole strategy of trying to focus on red states in this way. It's having this this interesting impact on some of these communities. There is a really uh we were talking about it before we went on, but there is a really sort of telling story within that story where there's this one guy who owns a restaurant nearby one of these communities where they're going to be building this new factory. And he's taught when he, when he was just hearing about the details of the policy, was saying, oh, this is great. There's going to be new people coming into my restaurant. The community is going to be revitalized. This is fantastic. And immediately, as soon as the interviewer said, like, oh, yeah, and this is because of Biden's policy that he put in place, immediately, right away, he says, no, I don't support it then. I don't want the government getting involved in these kinds of things. It's really kind of fascinating, this whole gamble of trying to use this climate policy to as a kind of economic economic stimulus in these red states, um, which might it might have some kind of an impact. We'll see if it actually affects anyone's opinions of Biden or the Democratic Party. But yeah, yeah. it's it's it is kind of just interesting to see this kind of uh, this phenomenon start to to play out more and more.
2: There was this uh, poll that I think like the University of Maryland and the Washington Post did a couple of weeks ago that basically showed like it's not working nobody knows anything about what the inflation reduction act is nobody cares about bidenomics like no one is stoked about this the way that they want people to be which like i don't know i think probably partially a messaging problem partially like a not actually reaching people problem um but yeah that that uh that restaurant owner in the political article was really funny i have to say though like i think there definitely is there are places where these investments are making a positive like a really positive contribution. Um, the idea of trying to like revitalize, especially kind of deindustrialized industrialized communities, um, communities that have lost a lot of jobs is really, it's a good idea. But I think in practice, like only time will tell what exactly that means. Um, you know, there's a big fight obviously happening right now um, with the UAW um, who are uh, gearing up for Uh, contract negotiations with the big three and like that I think is really emblematic of some of the questions that folks still have about what the IRA provisions will actually mean like will these new jobs be unionized Um, I was talking to a researcher recently who was like, I was talking to him about one of these uh, battery plants that's popping up where this steel mill used to be in West Virginia. And he was like, you know, it's great that they're getting uh, business in here in the first place, but if they're not paying taxes, how exactly is the town supposed to sustain like additional business, all the people who are moving here, you know, how do you like build roads and hospitals and things like this if you're not paying, if you're like doing all of this policy through tax breaks? Um, so I think it's like, there. I have many questions about how the actual implementation will go. That's not to say that it will not be a good thing, but I think it's like too too soon to tell in some cases how much people will actually benefit from, uh, from all this investment.
1: Yeah. That, that type of a strategy with luring people in with tax breaks and then assuming all of the consumer spending will revitalize the economy seems to be a short-sighted view uh, of an economic impact because that's just, it might work on paper, but what if, you know, what if we have a recession? What if, as inflation continue, or rate hikes continue to grow, what if inflation were to grow again and people have less money to spend, you know, their dollars not go as far. Then what? Then you have this company still manufacturing things, still making tons of money, paying little to no taxes. It's just, we we never want to, we never want to take on these power centers. We never want to take on any sort of entity that actually is, contributing to the problem in any respect, whether yeah. it's climate change or uh, economic fairness. 100%. We want to do it all through this kind of Rube Goldberg approach where everything has to be fine-tuned perfectly and in this vacuum if everything remains perfectly s- still, we'll see some economic growth. this just isn't it isn't sustainable. I mean we, <laughs> who's to say some of these people even in these communities aren't impacted by student loan debt. I saw a stat today that showed 53% of people with student loan debt expect to have to decide between paying their loan repayments or buying groceries. I mean, that that's 40 million plus people all across the country. And sure, many of them might not be working in manufacturing jobs, but that still is an impact on the community. 100%. That, you ha- that just never seems to be factored in.
2: Yeah, yeah, completely. Also, like, unless you actually re- regulate the contracts that people are getting, the incentives are all in the direction of being exploitative. Like, I mean, especially if there's a recession, what, like, are you like the profit seeking company who's coming in to build batteries going to be like, oh, you know what? People are really struggling. And that means that we're going to pay people more to work at our factories. And we're going to like be completely neutral on their contract negotiations when they, when they try to unionize, like we're going to be completely neutral um, we are going to like just give back to the community, even though we are even though like our whole, you know, kind of point as a business is to make money for our shareholders and executives and everything like the, the incentives in this kind of like market driven climate policy are just not the right ones to actually uh, to do things right.
1: Yeah. Are there going to be union jobs? And in many of these communities, especially rural communities like the diner owner that Rob referenced. He's in a town of 1,500 people. Do you think there are many competitors for a solar cell and panel panel manufacturing company in that town without any additional labor protections, they could pay people potentially as little as they want that yeah. and while remaining within federal law or state law. And what, what are people going to do? 100%. You know, like it's it, sometimes jobs like this are the only game in town. As someone who grew up in a really shitty part of Ohio in post-industrial America, one of the biggest employers outside of GM, and that was tough to get in because everyone, obviously everyone wanted to work there, were like call centers. Yep. Call centers paying like $13 an hour was like one of the better jobs you could get. So without any competition in this area, in, the, in, in, in these rural areas all over the country, you could pay people still starvation wages even if it's better than the gas station or walmart 100 and that that doesn't really help people long term
2: yeah totally and like the inflation reduction act does have some stuff like there's a prevailing wage agreement there's like some kind of like you have to use apprenticeship labor for some of these um projects but what it does not have is like any sort of union requirements, which is particularly frustrating, because like, obviously, it's not like the Biden administration had never thought about that. In fact, they faced tons of pressure from, you know, like leading building trades unions to put some kind of requirements in there like that. Um, so it's not like it wouldn't have been possible. Like we can have industrial policy that does actively work to rebuild industrial unions. Um, it was a choice that policymakers made to to not include those kinds of uh, requirements in the bill.
0: I think it's also worth asking. Um, you know, we're talking about the kind of economic stimulus that these kind of uh, policies can lead to, but there's also a question: It's supposed to be climate policy, and is it going to lead to a meaningful reduction in emissions? You know, yeah. making solar panels and EV batteries is great, but ultimately, is that going to meaningfully reduce the emissions? And America is still per capita, like the largest emitter. And so is the U.S. military. The U.S. military is the number one source of these emissions.
1: Totally. And was, yeah. yeah, and
0: I was looking at the the figures, like the like the investment numbers here, which is something like, it's three hundred and eighty something billion dollars, which is certainly a, a large sum of money. But that's maybe one third about of the annual military budget. One hundred percent. And so again, we go back to this kind of like double speak or the way that the Biden administration wants to have it both ways. They've made this relatively big investment. Yes, I think we can say it's it's going to lead to some economic stimulus, but ultimately, they're not doing what actually needs to be done to meaningfully attack the actual climate crisis. It's the economic crisis is being uh, addressed a little bit, but the actual climate crisis still isn't really being meaningfully uh, addressed at all.
2: Yeah, totally. Not to mention that there's like very significant giveaways to the fossil fuel industry in the Inflation Reduction Act. Like there's some. Provisions that are like, oh, you have to lease out this like amount of land to fossil fuel companies before you lease them out to renewable energy companies and things like this. Um, and yeah, I mean, the the uh, complete lack of even consideration of military emissions in like any of this policy is pretty uh uh you know, constant and always frustrating. Um, and that's like a global problem too. The US is by far the worst. Um But like in international climate negotiations, too, there's never any talk about military emissions. It's all like, you know, the energy that's used for like housing and, you know, residents and stuff like that. But like never anything about the massive amount of, you know, jet fuel and things like that that is used in war.
0: I mean, I think specifically talking about China is interesting in this context as well, because. China both gets used as a scapegoat about emissions. And we've talked about the ways that that's kind of like a not accurate frame framing of this, this subject as well in the sense of like the emissions that they're doing part of, part of the reason for that is because they're, they have this huge manufacturing industry, they're manufacturing our stuff. And if we were to take totally. back that manufacturing, our emissions, their emissions would go down and ours would rise. Yeah, um, There's also, they're, they're absolutely destroying everybody else in terms of the massive investments that they're making into renewable energies and solar and wind and becoming the the top EV um, exporter in the world. Um, And so at the same time, so we scapegoat China for emitting so much while they're completely putting us to shame in terms of their actual uh, climate policies. This also includes the big investment into rail and transit and these kinds of things also, um, in addition to that. And then at the same time, like... We need to be like if for and be for us to have any possibility of meaningfully confronting this severe crisis, which we're talking about, it's going to require like historic cooperation between the United States and China. And meanwhile, uh, the United States, this seems to be a bipartisan phenomenon. But under the Biden administration, they're continuing this like the saber rattling. They're continuing. Uh, yes. The military encirclement. They're pumping arms into Taiwan. They're doing everything they can to provoke a military conflict, rather than de-escalating that and in, initiating some kind of like uh, co- cooperation, which is going to be necessary to confront this uh, this crisis. So again, you see them taking every step to make this problem worse on a variety of levels while still kind of trying to tout their own accomplishments and how much they believe the science and care about the the issue, but their totally. actual actions don't seem to match up to that.
2: This is also, you can start to get into like the the, the realm of things that are completely true, but start to sound like the um, Oprah lasers theory thing. But like, this is part of the problem with the framing of, uh, it, this happens especially in like, from from the democratic uh white house but this framing of the climate crisis as like a national security emergency which can so easily be used to just be like and that's why we need to funnel more resources into the department of defense to take on this emergency the department of defense which is like you know has way less oversight than any other part of the us government and is the biggest contributor to emissions in the world like oh but, but if we just give them more funding then like they'll take care of it um it's i mean it's like a just a very ouroborosy i think sort of framing of uh of the problem
0: yeah jordan do you have anything else or do you think
1: we covered all the bases that we wanted to get into here yeah i think we did darna thank you so much for joining us where can people follow you and find uh your reporting
2: thanks so much for having me um i am reporting for the guardian so you can find me at theguardian.com is that right Yeah, at theguardian.com. I believe so. Yeah. And um, I tweet too much at Dharna Um, X. On x.com. Yeah, on on x.com. You can find me on x.com. The Everything
0: app. Do you think Elon's really getting rid of blocking people now? You're not going to be able to block anybody? That's the new key. I think I'm
2: the only person ever who... I don't think that I have anyone blocked. I just mute people. I've never blocked. I I know everyone's like, "Oh, you probably have like ten thousand people." Not zero. Maybe I have one. I don't know. I'll get back to you. I'll let you know if I have you blocked. I'll check.
0: I got so many people blocked. I got a lot of a lot of the haters and losers are just waiting to waiting
1: for the floodgates to open (laughs) here. You know there is just everybody. It's not just us. It's everybody. There is somebody else out there who is blocked by someone. Who is just waiting to just grind that axe from three or four years ago. You know they've been stewing on it. It's going to be a fun trip down memory lane trying to figure out who the fuck is this person? (laughs) Why are they still so mad (laughs) about being locked three years ago? It's, It's bound to happen to so many people.
2: When yeah. you get those, you gotta print them out. Oh, I can't wait to see like uh, Richard Hanania's mentions or whatever on that momentous day. <laughs> yeah, man. Well,
0: Thank you so, so much, Darna. Darna. It's always great to have you on the show. Thanks,
2: thanks for, much joining. for having me. Congrats on two hundred episodes, y'all.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Thank you for listening to The Insurgents. If you want to subscribe to the show, you can find us on iTunes or Spotify or at Substack, theinsurgents.substack.com. You'll get the latest episodes delivered straight to your inbox as well as our newsletter. On Twitter, we are at insurgentspod. Tweet at us, harass canon in our replies. And then send us your hate mail to theinsurgentspod at gmail.com. Thank you once again for listening.